Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. You know what I want to do this week is to hit a topic that keeps on uh, people asking about this and such general questions is basically what are the major blocks to getting into, we'll call it a low-carb diet. If you want to call it the ketogenic diet, that's a kind of a medical term actually coined from now about 100 years ago. So we'll call it low-carb, sufficiently low-carb, not to put you permanently in ketosis, but to put you over time and having your body transition into ketosis gradually to put you into a what they call a nutritional ketosis, which really isn't something that's going to shock you with the numbers. I mean, you will probably be, we're talking six months from now and a year from now, should you continue in this particular focus of your diet, that you will be maybe 0.6 ketones when you get your reading, maybe one. But when you start the transition, if you're new to this and you're just saying, hey, I want to get started right now, and what can I do? Uh, you'll see bigger numbers right up front. It's very easy and people feel so proud of themselves. They got into keto- ketosis as well. And they'll start with urine strips and they'll see that their urine strip turns purple because of ketones. And that actually is a total waste of time. That trans- initial transition like that to find it in your urine is really about a 30-day rise and fall of ketones in your urine. And what that is, it's really your kidneys accommodating in learning that, oh, wait a minute, we're now burning ketones, which is a natural process, by the way. We just haven't done it for a while. And so they tend to not know to keep them. We're pretending there's a a person in your kidneys. Your kidneys are learning to adapt and saying, no, we actually filter and keep the ketones. Don't let them go out. And um, what happens in this transition is your uric acid uh, tends to rise and also fall. So you have two different things. Your ketones rise and then they fall in your urine, which is outside of your body, whereas your uric acid tends to become less in your urine and more in your blood, and then it lowers. So you do have this transition. Therefore, there's a watch out period, be careful period of the first 30 days for those who have a propensity to gout and to pseudo gout for that matter. Um, and that's a whole nother gout story, but just saying if you are if you know you have gout and you've been told you had gout and you had to do on various medications, not just NSAIDs, but as, uh, endomethacin and so on and so forth, you'll know that. And so therefore, you really need to sort of go slowly. And I, was, I would pretend and assume you will go through a gout phase, so therefore take your um, prescribed medication. It sometimes is even colchicine. So colchicine or endomethacin, you do that for the month while you're transitioning so you don't go through these joint painful periods, okay? So that's the transition. And I want to sort of prepare you for the reality is not that dramatic. The reality is not that dramatic six months out or a year out. Yes, you're going to drop your weight and you're going to look good and you're going to have all those wonderful things to talk about, but it's not going to be this measurable uh, number of ketones you're going to have saying, wow, look at I had another good day today. I got seven ketones. That's outrageously high. And you'd have to push yourself with something like MCT oil to get that high. And no, it's not necessarily worthwhile doing it that high and you will feel. So you get MCT oil, you have that. And by the way, if you ever have MCT oil, 
uh, which then quickly within 15 minutes creates uh, ketones. And then if you have a glass of wine or some sort of alcohol after that, it even boosts it up higher because you've now um, stopped the burning of your ketones, which start to accumulate and get even higher. And it your, your alcohol is the first thing. It's top priority to be burned. A little bit of an aside, but you will feel that. You will feel what I call an acetone rush, which is a ketone, one of three ketones. Ketones is beta-hydroxybutyrate, uh, acetoacetate, and acetone. And so you'll get an acetone rush in your head, which is not bad, but that's what you'll feel. All right, but what I want to prepare you for is this discussion. So this is a borrowed pat, uh, borrowed, part, borrowed podcast that I did a while ago. So we're reprising that because it hits the basic things of what are the blocks that people have. People come to keto with such a hyper-simplistic attitude that they think anybody can do this and one way they can. But let me tell you, let me brace you, brace you for this. There is 50% at least failure rate with ketosis, with the ketogenic diet, period. Regardless of who you talk to, whether it's um, Verda Health or whether it's, well, I spent a couple of days up at Duke with Dr. Westman, it's a 50% max top, and it's probably not even that, it's probably closer to 40 to 45% success rate. They write it off that anybody didn't who wasn't successful on keto was non-compliant. I think that's a load of crap and I think it's incredibly condescending, but I go into what are the common five blocks. Certainly there can be a lot more and we, I personally, when I work with people, I do four panels, hormone panel, uh, intracellular nutritional panel, a uh, pretty long metabolic panel. I called it that. It's really an assessment panel. And what's the fourth thing? And then I do a genomic to see what their genomic predisposition is. Those are the pieces I put together. So that's how I look at the world. But the rest of the world doesn't do what I do. I'm sure there's other people that do that out there too. But let's say when I was at Duke with Dr. Westman, he has a limited labs that he takes strictly on blood levels and nothing else. And so there's a lot that's missed. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying that most physicians try to keep it cheap and reproducible and fast and you either fit in the box or you do not. Hence, that's why there's 40 to 45 stretch to call it 50% success rate with keto. So be prepared. There are metabolic blocks that nearly everybody has, and some people have them to keep them from getting into ketosis and keeping the ketogenic diet successful for them. So have a good listen. Uh, it's deep, it's appropriate, and it's probably the most asked for podcast that I have done. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I want to go over, in essence, five points. We'll see if we get through them all, but five points that I think apply to everybody. I've been working with a couple groups lately. One's men, you know, there's mixed, and one's focused on immune issues, their immune issues. And it seems like these five points are relevant across the board perhaps a little more pointed towards men, but you'll see that they show up in all panels. So I'll start from the top down. And, and here's why I go down this road of even looking into this direction, because we start with the ketogenic diet, which as you know, from my story, it's something that I feel has been absolutely life-changing and therefore my passion for it and my wife's passion for it. So going further, attending another 
a lot of medical conferences and so on and learning sort of some of the basic stuff. When I first showed up, I go, wow, um, some of these things that they're discovering are things I already knew, but why don't you just not listen to that voice, Carl, Dr. Goldkamp, and just hear what's new? What what didn't you know? So, I mean, obviously the high fat and the low carb and the moderate protein, that actually all was new to me. I never really thought through the lens of macros. So that was new, and I think that is probably, if I was to do practice again from the beginning, I would probably be doing, I'd be a keto doctor. I'd be doing keto medicine first. But that leads you to the question of why doesn't the ketogenic diet work for everybody? So now that I just said that, and basically it comes down to uh, it works for about 50% of the people. What do I mean by works? That needs to be defined a little further because it sounds crude. It sounds unsupported. It sounds argumentative. So as my wife has encouraged me to say is to define that, it's not that it doesn't work. It's that this 50% that show no results will say are are non-compliant, but yet that's not true. Her point, which I think is a point of a lot of people, is like, don't say, if you said this diet doesn't work 50% of the people, then why bother? I don't mean that. I think it should work for 100% of the people, barring people with inborn errors in metabolism or some very specific uh, genetic and or, I'll leave it a genetic disorder that puts them in a special category. So let's say 100% minus that group is the percent I'm talking about, which is probably 99 point something percent. So why isn't it across the globe, those who are doing it, those who are implementing it, are not getting results? And I understand there's politics and everything else, so that's why I said those who are doing it. I understand there's vast populations of people who have no idea. So we now have talked to doctors that have this as their practice, and they say we have a 50% compliance rate and 100% success rate. So those who do it have success. Okay. So then this 50% that they say are non-compliant, meaning they're not following directions, doesn't that make you sound like a school child? What, you're not following directions? Johnny, you get in the back of the class, and until you have the attitude to follow directions, you just stand on your, you sit on your hands. I just don't think that's a very satisfying answer. They're not non-compliant. Something else is in the way. So I've taken it on probably for the last year now and starting various coaching groups, and now it's getting into formalized programs, and uh, it's led me down a path that it's become pretty interesting, and you'd have to dig further. You know, why everybody wants to lose weight for the most part, but why is it many cannot lose weight? It's a huge market, but can we be a little more intelligent about how we talk about it? Can we be a little more intelligent about uh, not dismissing major factions of the population that don't get results. We can't just say, oh, it's emotional. They have a mental block. Oh, they're not disciplined. And, you know, they're not compliant because they can't follow directions. There probably is some of that in there, but that's usually not even the top 15. I would say it has to do with other other issues first. because. Well, here's my reality now. You know, everybody that I work with, I require them to go on chronometer so I can see what they're eating, so I know what their macros are. 
So I'm going to assume that those I'm working with that are paying me to work with them are going to tell the truth to me. Why waste their time? Why waste my time? Why waste their money? So I get to see that every day. So that's kind of the beginning. And certainly in some of the formal programs that we've been launching lately, you know, it's required for the first couple of months. We're just going to lock in, get this down, you know, help them set it up correctly. So I can see on the same set of macros for the most part, some people are getting tremendous results and some aren't. So it's clearly not a case of compliance. They are compliant. There's a huge difference in results. So now I know it's not about, didn't you hear the directions, Johnny? You can come back to your seat now, by the way. That it's, it's something deeper. So this is what I've sort of filtered out that I think are really pretty relevant in terms of things that I believe need to be in place. So certainly the macros, or you can, you can say dropping your carbs is clearly the number most important thing you can do. And you can even reference it by car, carbohydrate toxicity, carbotoxicity. Sounds like a car, doesn't it? I'm driving a carbotox. <laughs> carbotoxicity. And, and it really is. So when you break out carbohydrates as a single topic, you find, and that's everything from sugar. We used to used to talk about this topic as in, well, there's refined carbohydrates and there's unrefined carbohydrates, meaning basically vegetables are the unrefined and you know, white flour was refined and sugar certainly was refined and candy was refined. But no, it's put them all in one big pile, the same category. Carbohydrates by themselves have an addictive quality in part because of how it affects your glucose and then your insulin, then your glucagon, then your so on and so on and so forth. It's a big story. So the issue that is just now coming to the fore is the addictive quality of carbohydrates in general. Do I think all carbs are bad? No. I mean, you have to choose from that. Um, we're pretty much at a carbless diet because carbs are not essential to your diet. You don't have to have one carbohydrate for the rest of your life and you will do fine. Obviously, you need to choose good quality food choices. You can't be doing processed foods and all this other, which would be primarily carbohydrates. So. The issue of carbohydrates is amazing. So you have people drop your carbs first. Hence, that's the old news of about 100 plus years ago when they started the ketogenic diet in 1924. Okay, but it's because people are basically have a toxicity reaction to carbohydrates. Therefore, it affects their immune system. Therefore, it affects their inflammation. Therefore, it affects a lot of things. You can go on a microbiome if that makes you feel better, but that's all downstream effects. You know, that's... You start with the mouth, everything else follows, don't you think? So after that is, if you really drop your carbs low enough, then you really don't have to calculate how much protein you have. But how we set it up is 20 grams, car the classic ketogenic diet, 20 grams carbohydrates, have them be leafy green, vegetables for the most part, in essence a salad. Protein is anywhere between, I put... Uh, one and a half to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Easy to calculate. Sounds fancy to say, but that's how, if you do that, you can compare it to all the research papers you read, should you want to, as opposed to doing it per lean body, a lean muscle mass or body mass, which is a bit 
vague reference. So when you have those two things locked down, you're on your way. You're not clear. And a lot of people, like the 50% that I'm talking about, still don't make headway. What's that about? Why? You know, they can add in the fats, right? So the part that I left out was the rest is fats. The first controversy you come to is, and, and depending who you see, they'll say, well, if you have a couple hundred pounds to lose, you really don't need to add fat to your diet because you're going to be eating your fat. You know, you're going to be digesting the fat and losing weight. You know, mechanistically, that is a, a great idea. And I, I fall in love with the simplicity of that. But I have not seen that ever to be true with anybody I've dealt with. So it's a very small population, obviously. I don't have decades of information, but I don't think anybody else does either. I think it was a great idea, but I think what does happen, at least what I'm seeing, with this metabolic transition from burning glucose to burning fats, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, you can produce ketones, you can see them on a urine strip, and then after that, you can start seeing them on your blood ketometer reading. But I think true transition to burning ketones as a primary source of fuel really takes a couple months. But you'll see some actual changes. First, you, your body learns to make them, and then it learns to use them. So it's not, it's not a hand in glove. And the process will continue for a couple of years. And then, by the way, that's not just me saying that. It's uh, Jeff Folek, Steve Finney. You'll see, those who have worked with athletes, you'll see that they're getting more and more refined. That metabolic flexibility, especially with athletes, gets more and more efficient as time goes out. So anyways, the carbs first, then the proteins. And let's say they do that. What I've seen is, yeah, they do need to eat a lot of fat, probably for a month or two. You know, not hypercaloric, not a lot of calories. You just eat to your calculated basal metabolic rate within that. And they're going to still going to say, that's a lot of fat. Well, what I've seen, I can't sort of speak to what's going on under the skin. I can just sort of guess at that. What I've seen is that after a couple months, then they start dropping down their dietary percentage of fat. I think they've made that conversion. And so now it's a very easy for their body to utilize their own fat. I've not seen the advertisement of, ah, you don't need to eat fat if you're fat. If you have 100 pounds or 200 pounds, you know, you're good to go. You just, you just use that. So I've not seen that. And that's, you'll, I don't know if that's a point or truth or not, but I think that does come in time. So if you saw a patient once a year, you wouldn't notice that difference. If you saw them once a week for the first six months, you would see that difference. So, and also patients need to see progress. They'll lose water. Everybody loses water weight in the first couple of days and then they, you know, jump up and click their heels. But that's not the real situation. Okay, so anyway, so beyond that, so now I, I've told you I've seen people basically with down to the gallery, eating to the same set of macros for their particular calculations and the calculations that I've helped calculate. So they didn't go off and do it on their own and I trusted. I calculated it for them. So what's with that? So here's what I've come up with. You know, some of the things that real life imposes on mucking up our metabolism is in essence what I'm saying. Mucking up. They make it less efficient. They they make it so we can't just jump back in time to be the hunter-gatherer and have this perfect metabolism. The world we're living in and the world we have lived in for really the last 50 years is 
different completely than it's ever existed before. I mean, in terms of, yeah, environmental pollutants. I mean, yeah, in terms of the kind of food we eat now. Your grandmother wouldn't even recognize most of what most of what most of us eat. She'd recognize what I'm eating, and she'd recognize what we're eating. But those are big changes. And then to that, you can ask, you know, what was your mother's diet like? You know, how were you born? And so on and so forth. C-section versus vaginal breastfeeding versus not, and so on. Those are also, but these are bigger issues now than they were 50 to 100 years ago, for sure. So apart from those, and that's that's important, I'm not even going to get into epigenetics, which is really what's the history of your grandmother and your mother and your great-great-grandmother. You've inherited those genes and grandparents, I should say. The first is processed foods. If you look at so many macros to macros, one of them, I'm not saying this is the definitive obstacle. If they stop doing this, they'll get a breakthrough. You know, all the ice will melt and things will flow. Um, it may well happen. But the biggest thing that people need to do and find difficulty doing is getting off of processed foods. And processed foods really line you up to addiction again. There's that word. It really lines, really solidifies that carbohydrate toxicity, carbohydrate addiction, I should say. And it's not just that uh, you love those, what is it you would love? Uh, you love that soda, you love those chips, you love those nuts, you love those oh, keto chocolates that aren't really keto. These things have a lot of additives in there. Additives could be food coloring, could be sweetener, salt, all the things that alter the taste, especially if it's more commercial. If it comes from a big brand company, you have more of that stuff in there and they don't have to declare it all not to mention artificial sweeteners and so on and so forth. They affect us. The fact that we know how they affect us 100%, that we don't know how they affect us 100%, that doesn't mean that we know everything about them. We're just starting to. Because there's a lot of money on the table. And, and also, why would one study that? Where are they going to get their research paid for? Unless there is some sort of health calamity that is reasonably associated with these particular things you're studying, like the artificial sweeteners. So that's part of it. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but processed foods. And my analogy to processed foods is that it blocks certain receptors or makes those receptors partially occupied with these things. So when your other hormones or other other things that are supposed to be hitting those receptors, uh, it's blocked. So you now have a compromised metabolism. You can make it a very specific and hard to understand story by going right down to different pathways, but my generalization works for me and it's true. But the science behind, and this really comes from the, this level of understanding, it comes from uh, Dr. Joan Iflin, who was on a few podcasts ago, that this is not just happenstance, this is engineered neuroscience food additive work. And what it's trying to do is trying to not have you think about what you're eating. So that thinking, so that thinking, just that word thinking, I'm thinking about something, you know, and well, if you're married like me and your wife says, did you hear what I said? A good answer all the time is, well, I'm, I'm thinking about that. <laughs> I'm thinking about that. Well, that means that I'm in my prefrontal cortex, the part right at your eyebrow level. 
you know, right up there. That's where I'm thinking, well, if you're eating your favorite chips and so on and so forth, those additives are making sure that that connection doesn't exist, that you don't go thinking about why you should or shouldn't be eating those favorite chips. You go right to go right to the dopamine producing. You know, you make this person, you make me feel happy. And that's it. I eat chips, I feel happy. And I don't think about it. So there's two things going on. One is that they have a strong connection to dopamine, which is your sense of life is good and so on and so forth. And the other is they disconnect your thinking part. And as well as getting in the way of other fat burning aspect, but primarily it's a cerebral thing that keeps you eating, keeps you not thinking about what you're eating. And then you have all the downstream metabolisms, metabolic problems that come with all the additives. It's gotten to the point that it, the reference is, and I think it's quite justified. It's like food companies are putting drugs in our food. That's really what it comes down to. The correct name for this food additive addiction or Refine is a food addictive addiction or refined food addiction, in truth. So whether it's a donut or a packaged food, and so why was a donut? Some of you are saying, well, that seems like a whole food. It's not a whole food. It's very refined uh, gluten, and gluten is actually very addictive. Gluten is very addictive. Casein, which comes from dairy, is very addictive. You've probably heard me talk about this before. But all this happened in the 80s when the tobacco companies shifted off into the started buying food companies. So they took their know-how and went to a different football field. And you can see this. You can, there's graphs of this inflection point just started to rise at that point. It's amazing. You know, so you'd say, well, what did we eat before processed foods? It was closer to food, for sure. I mean, obviously we had white bread and so on and so forth, refined, very highly refined foods. But we didn't have that much in the way of processed foods. Sodas and other things that are high phosphates and processed foods, they're pretty interesting because um, they block your ability to burn fat. They usually lead to high blood pressure and they decrease your motivation for working out. They keep you on the sofa, in other words. So where would you find those? Sodas, frozen foods, packaged meats, bread, bakery items. Fast food shrinks your brain. Seriously, fast food shrinks your brain. Punch that into Google, follow it up as a thread. And it's basically pro-insulin resistance and neurodegeneration. That's right. Do you want me to elaborate? Elaborating is you're very pro-glucose, you're very anti-fats, you have a lot of additives, and you know insulin resistance clearly leads to weight gain. For the neurodegeneration, think of dementia, think of Alzheimer's, in the very least. Especially when you get to ultra-processed foods. They have higher risks of cardiovascular, coronary heart disease, cerebrovascular disease. You pretty much know the list. My analogy for this, and I think it's pretty clever, is that I don't know how much you know about greyhounds. You know, they, they run around the track and, and it's a big deal. I mean, it's just like horse racing in certain areas. Uh, I grew up in New Hampshire and they had dog track down in Rockingham and they have a few places in Massachusetts. I don't know about down here in the South now, but... They have to be trained. So dogs, greyhounds do like to chase rabbits and so on and so forth. That's part of their kind of wolf-like heritage, like most dogs. But they are called out, and those who respond to, 
for chasing the rabbit. And after chasing the rabbit, you know, chasing the rags, are they trainable? But the rags that they have to chase in the actual competition and prior to that they should never catch are soaked with chemicals that makes them so addicted that they, they're part of their brain that is dopamine, the anticipation that you are going to get so, so jacked on dopamine, right? You're going to get such a dopamine rush when you get to that rabbit that you can't think of anything else, but a hundred percent, you'll go, 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 go. So that's what processed food's like. It's the same. This is not made up. This is actually true. So we're saying the first secret is of weight loss is processed foods. We had carb toxicity, actually, I should say, um, and processed foods, which is really part of that. So time to get off the track and reconnect with the front part of your brain. So what does that mean? That usually means that you stay away from the places that cause those triggers. So if you can identify in your life that it is processed foods and obviously stop buying it and you stop going to the stores, you stop going in that aisle that has that food, you walk away, you don't expose yourself. If you're an alcoholic, you don't go back to the bar every night just to prove that you, you can be in that environment and not drink. That's a little bit, that's a little bit counterproductive. If you're giving up cigarettes, you don't go to the place where everybody's smoking. So just learn where these things are and don't go there. So if it's in the grocery store, don't go to that part of the grocery store, which is the middle, by the way. So the second thing, and this is a bit of discovery. So when I started in the ketogenic diet, since we're basically whole food, we didn't have to deal with that. So for us, it was pretty much just learning about macros. And um, we weren't on, or I think I was just getting off my medications from my Crohn's and ulcerated colitis. So, but the second point, it's medications. I've seen, again, apples to apples people and some people be on certain medications and I really had to research the medications if they weren't obvious and find out that actually weight gain was associated with this. And weight gain was usually due to uh, a neurotransmitter or something, you know, you, you, you worked it into it either blocked GABA or it stimulated GABA, gamma amino benzoic acid. And, um, and therefore, by feedback, would stop ketosis or minimize ketosis. So you couldn't burn your own fat if you couldn't get into ketosis. You couldn't, you know, they said, well, because GABA is one of the things that are produced in the ketogenic diet. That's the bliss part. That's the balancing neurotransmitter we talked about before. So at this point right here, some people are saying, oh, this is way too technical. This is way too technical. It's way over my head. It's not way over your head. What I'm saying is medications keep you from burning fat, and keep you focused on having to have more carbs, more glucose. So I'm, burning it down, I'm bringing it down to something real simple. The fact that I've seen this fleshed out and the fact that you don't hear about this from other people, that medications, I'd almost put medications at the top of the list. When, when you work with diabetics are on seven medications, they are locked in. Uh, others that are on, so you heard uh, Dr. Palmer, Christopher Palmer speak on a podcast a while back, you know, look at all the medications that have locked them into the same situation. So those are kind of extreme special uh, special cases or they're a whole category around mental disorders, whole category around insulin problems, diabetes, type 1, 2, and so on and so forth. That, okay, what about the rest that are, uh, uh, that are not so 
grandiose in terms of their diagnosis, well, it's still as applicable, just different medications. And the problem is, and you probably didn't know this, is that I think it was after 2000, 2001 or two, that the uh, drug companies, so the pharmaceutical companies, no longer have to report to the FDA if their product, if if they know that their product blocks various vitamins, various nutrients from being absorbed. Or said another way, if they know that their product will cause certain nutrient deficiencies. That's what I'm talking about. So this is how you measure. When you take somebody on um, so many medications and you give them blood work like we do, we do an intracellular nutrient panel from SpectraCell. It's no big secret. Been doing that for about 15 years. And so SpectraCell, by the way, for those who know Tim Ferriss, uh, his book was Four Hour Body. It was about came out about four or five years after we were into SpectraCell. He was all about SpectraCell because it's a good test. The test is blood. It looks inside your cells, not in your blood, not in your serum. And so inside your cells is where it all comes together, where it all works. Uh, very accurate. And so we find those are on various medications. These are the nutrient deficiencies at that level that are caused from the medications. Who would have known that? And unfortunately, this is the only way to really detect that now. You can go back and research and you can go into the various users group and see what is a chief complaint. But that is a lot of work to get that kind of information. So we use that panel to discern that. So I would say this is the the third thing that's a big deal. Medications. Medications stop you from burning fat, really no matter how much you exercise, because they've blocked these various receptors. Or they've overstimulated the receptors to the point that it's caused another problem. The thing about medications is that they're most effective when you just started taking them. And after that, their effectiveness, so I don't care if it's a diabetic medication or for mental disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar, or for cardiovascular issues, heart disease, uh, headaches, uh, whatever, gastrointestinal, you name it. So they're only, they're, they're most effective when you just start taking them. After a day or two, certainly after a week or two, their effectiveness starts to decline. You've learned to, therefore your body compensates, either upregulates, downregulates, or learns to clear it out more effectively. And so that, as an analogy, is like the use of pesticides. So if you have a crop, obviously, we're not talking about organic here. Um, if you have a crop and you're being annihilated by a certain pest for a couple and you come in with the pesticides and it cleans them out and you go, whoa, hallelujah, the pests are gone or they've been killed. And yet, maybe later that season they start coming back, you spray again, it's effective but not completely. A year later, it's a little less effective, a little less effective, a little less effective. And so what do you have to do? Well, you then have to use other pesticides. And so in medicine, you then have to use other medications to do the same effect that is losing its effectiveness. And medications have side effects. Use the side effects are due to nutrient depletions. It's caused. So now you have other medications that have to come in to support this one medication that you started with. So now your list gets to be a little longer. And the average American, we're speaking the average American from 1940, from 40 years old to 60 years old, 
and it gets higher after that, is on four to five medications taken daily. Four to five medications per average American, quote unquote, from 40 to 60, it goes up after that. And that's the reason. And then you then you have the different doctors. One's the heart doctor, and the other's the diabetic doctor, and the other's the hormone doctor, perhaps, and so on, and it gets pretty complicated. And the thyroid, and so on. But that's what happens. It's just like pesticides. They get weaker. You need more. You then you then have to start thinking about the polluted soil. What are you going to do with that? If people notice or care to notice. Um, here's some examples, by the way. So antidepressants tend to block B12, CoQ10. Anti-inflammatory, we're talking basic anti-inflammatory. Aspirin, Advil, Motrin. Uh, they'll block your vitamin C and folate. Folate's very dangerous. The folate is, you start blocking folate, you start blocking CoQ10. You're now down into the mitochondria and you now have a lot of systemic problems. Pregnisone and cortisone, high-end steroids, they will block vitamin D, folic acid, calcium, magnesium, selenium, zinc. Statins, they block CoQ10. That's been known for at least 20 years. B12, vitamin D, E, folic acid, vitamin A. Hormone replacement therapy, that's a big topic, so you'd have to be specific, but right now this is in reference to estrogen replacement therapy, um, sorry, HRT, which is estrogen progesterone replacement. That's B2, vitamin B2, vitamin B6, vitamin B12, vitamin C, folate, magnesium, zinc. So the list gets bigger and bigger. And so not to look at these things, so the degree that these particular medications are effective for doing what they're supposed to do. And I would say arguably statins are not, but the others, you know, if your hormones, you're feeling better because you've replaced your hormones and so on, but you're going to start to feel worse because you've created all these other deficiencies. So in the very least, if you're using these medications, think about the nutrients, depletions that are caused, and at least support that. But for that, you need to get tested to see if you are depleted and so this is just making sense. So it's, it's you know, the idea that you can do one thing, you don't have to change anything else, that's naive. Uh, perhaps it's certainly ignorant, but it's naive to think that way. You affect everything. And now we have a way of measuring what you're affected. So you can make your medications a little safer in the very least. Ideally, being off the medications and thinking of a better way is a better way. Antihypertensives, CoQ10, they block CoQ10, vitamin, or these nutrient deficiencies have been found in patients on antihypertensives, that is hype, um, blood pressure medications. CoQ10, vitamin B6, zinc, vitamin B1. What would you experience because of that? So let's take that as an example. What? So people are taking blood pressure medications and I'll say these are alpha-2 agonist, capitress, uh, aldomet, to be very specific. So I'm not too general here because it's uh, this is not about ca um, calcium channel blockers. So what would you experience due to the nutritional deficiencies of CoQ10, vitamin B6, zinc, and vitamin B1? You'd have more cardiovascular problems, a weaker immune system, low energy, depression, sleep disturbance, increased cardiovascular risk, I already said that, 
wound healing problems, decreased sense of smell, taste, sexual dysfunction, kind of goes without saying, irritability, memory loss, muscle weakness, edema. So isn't that fun? And ACE inhibitors are another set. So you basically, with research, can find the medications that you're after, and you can find out not just what their side effects are. That's a clue. Your side effects are a clue of what they're depleting you of or blocking. And then that will probably lead you to a, to a, a user group if it's not covered already. And some of these drugs, like statins, go back a long way. So the information's out there on statins. That's easier to find. Okay, not going to go into antidepressants, but they are interesting. I would say if there was one category of, of clients, patients that I have had, um, is that those who are on antidepressants definitely gain weight. Those that are on antidepressants are hard to motivate. It's really hard to reach those people. They're in kind of this neither high nor low. And so there has to be a channel through which you can kind of talk to them directly. But if they feel really tied to their antidepressants, it's going to be hard for them to lose weight. Do I have a direct mechanism of action there? Um, no, it'd be too complicated to go over here, but I have some ideas, you know, neurotransmitter problems, etc. So there's a better way. You know, there's another road to consider, obviously. One that leads to better health, but that better road is to no longer need medication by making the appropriate lifestyle changes and identify and address your nutritional deficiencies. You know, when it comes to getting the idea of an analogy across of basically understanding you can be a fat burner and a car burner, I use the analogy of we now have different cars out there. We now have cars that run on electricity. We have cars that run on gas. And it's just a different fuel for a different car. I think this whole ketogenic, low-carb, high-fat movement is making us aware of what the right fuel is for our bodies. And I do believe it's fat. I think there's way, a lot, um, untold volume of research that supports that. Whether it gets, you know, the public attention, it's hard to know. There's a lot of politics involved in that. Um, the other thing across genders now is low muscle mass. You know, it really, it's low muscle mass and just happens to us. And it's, it's not because people have been avoiding, purposely avoiding the gym or so on. It's just that I think they grew up at a time that their lives became so busy. The idea that exercise was something that you had to do, that was your responsibility to you and your body, that wasn't there. In fact, just after me, where it was this generation of grammar school kids and all the way up through high school that didn't have gym class. So gym class was taken away from their curriculum in lieu of something else. And that's a big mistake. So that lesson about, oh, we're going to go to gym class, that generation, when they graduated from high school and college, they were still going to gym class, right? They were still going to the gym or going to the pool or going to whatever. They were still maintaining their activity because they saw that it was part of what they had to do to live a healthy life. That lesson was lost. So therefore, the doing of it was lost. And so consequently, you have generations of people coming into their older years, older years being 40 and above, that are way under-muscled. And when you're under-muscle, your muscle is an organ, you are going to be 
having far less in the way of a number of hormones, but testosterone in, in the case of uh, men and women, but primarily men, when they're undermuscled, so the fancy word is sarcopenia, undermuscled, they call it fat on the outside, thin on the inside, tofi, skinny fat, all this is reference to the same thing. So if you're skinny fat, uh, you're undermuscled, you automatically having less testosterone being produced, therefore you're burning less fat, therefore you're gaining more fat, more fat in itself, especially belly fat, becomes another organ that transmits other hormones. And so that in itself is another additive that man or woman, in terms of keeping down testosterone and making it even more difficult to burn fat. But it can be turned around. So just, it's just like, oh my gosh, I have to go back and have a, a profile of a, of a um, bodybuilder. No, not at all. You just got to get into the gym or home. There's ways you can do this at home as well. So it's not a gym thing only. It's just convenient. You can get in there and get out very quickly. And it is about building muscle. It's not about cardio. And if you're doing nothing, something's better than nothing. So these are the reasons that I find that have blocked people in that 50% that aren't getting results for a ketogenic diet. And it's not because the diet is not working. This has to go, why are they non-compliant? If that's a better way of saying it, if, why are they non-compliant? This is why they're non-compliant. Is this other stuff got in their way? Their other stuff got into their, into their receptors, got into their hormones, got into their brain, disconnected parts of their brain. It all starts to add up. And so therefore, looking at these things separately is really, really important. And we'll go into that on a future podcast. But I think, at least in my mind and in my world, these things have to be looked at. And so how do you look at muscle mass? That's pretty easy. You can just look at your lean muscle mass. You have some scales now you can buy. And, and that's good enough to get going. Uh, in our office, we used to have a BIA bioimpedance analysis. And now most scales can do that as well as we could have done in our office. And so you get to find uh, what your muscle mass is. Muscle mass or, or some define muscle mass, others define lean body mass. And the difference is lean body mass is all of your organs, all of your bones, all of your muscle. So it varies a lot. If you were to go fast, that means your organs would get thinner because all the they'd be empty, right? Nothing in your intestines, your liver doesn't have to work much, your spleen, and so they get smaller. So suddenly it looks like, oh my gosh, I lost all this muscle mass. No, you didn't. You lost your lean body mass, and that's because you're, of your uh, organs not having to work. They're on vacation. Yeah, I guess the, the simple truth is if you don't have the muscle, you can't burn your fat for the most part. And size matters. Big muscles burn a lot of fat. And there again, you don't have to be a bodybuilder, but you have to have sufficient muscle mass. And so I see it now looking back, and perhaps it was uh, always the perspective in our family that uh, this was your personal responsibility. You had to be physically active. That was your personal responsibility. Excuses can only go so far. Maybe you had an exam or something you just couldn't do. Obviously for that day, it's fine. But you had to work it in. You know, you breathed, you bathed, you dressed, you groomed yourself, and you had to take care of your muscles. You had to be physically active, whether that was sports or gym or whatever, but it, ha it was part of it. I think we've lost that. Back to the gym class analogy kind of thing. I guess the last thing that I would point to 
is we can look at hormones. And hormone panels are really interesting to look at. And the, the reason I say that with a sort of pregnant pause is because people see hormones as the panacea. The, it's going to solve everything. If I'm low on testosterone, I'll take testosterone. If I'm low on, I'll do hormone replacement therapy. People have their choices. I'm saying that's a component and you can do that. But I think there's other things like, like muscle mass, like losing weight, like getting off processed foods, like reducing your carbs, that is a big deal. That sets you clearly on your way. And none of them have to do with medications or even supplements for that matter. The supplements, and I do believe in supplements, but they are like filling in the potholes on the road so you can then achieve some progress. You're taking out the obstacles to cure, in essence. Okay? So the last one is is about hormones. And yep, if you're low testosterone, for whatever reason, both men and women, you're going to be gaining fat. We can talk about PCOS, but that's a whole different thing. That's basically high glucose, high insulin leads to low estrogen, progesterone. So the relative difference is your high testosterone in those women of childbearing years. But it changes as you get older. Okay, so those are the five things. I hope this has been helpful. This is a scan. Remember I've said in some of my podcasts, you should always be able to go about what is Carl talking about and does it directly have to do with the ketogenic diet? So this directly has to do with the ketogenic diet and why there's 50% noncompliance, if that's what you want to feel is, is a better way to say it, or I say it doesn't work for 50% of the people. It's not about the diet. It's about how all the obstacles that have been placed in front of the people so their biology does not work as cleanly as it would 100 years ago. So if I took back in the day of Banting, 1861, I believe it was, Banting, remember he wrote the Letters on Corpulence. That was the first low fat, that was the first weight loss book. Letters on Corpulence because he was a very successful undertaker in the UK and got fat because he had a great diet. And he wanted to know how to lose weight. Finally, somebody, one of his doctors said, drop the carbs. And he dropped the carbs. It wasn't even about high fat back then. Drop the carbs. And he lost his weight. So then he wrote a book on letters of corpulence. So the point there was all he had to do is work with food. He didn't have to work with relative to pollution. And maybe there was some cold, you know, soot in the London air back then. But clearly it's not like he didn't have to worry about environmental estrogens. He didn't have to worry about heavy metals much. And so it was a whole different world. It was really just about a food conversation. This, And he certainly didn't have these injurious medications that block you from burning fat. So it was a simpler world. So when somebody said, drop your carbs, that was one suggestion. So for the people that I see now that have had a really hard time and still believe that the ketogenic diet is right for them, there's layers we have to go through to make the ketogenic diet as easy as it was for Banting back in 1861. I hope you follow that because a lot of the conversation that we have between people, and I mean kind of ignorant, stupid conversation for the most part, just revolves around diet as if all food is clean and all you have to do is that level of relating to food of, no, just have don't have carbs and you'll do fine or, or whatever. It's the food is polluted for the most part First choice is have non-polluted food, okay? And I'm not speaking organic, actually. 
Okay, I'm speaking of stepping away from processed foods. And ideally, if you can step away to certainly your greens, your veggies being organic, because otherwise, if you have non-organic greens, you're having pesticides with everything you eat. So it's like, think of it this way. Instead of putting salt or sugar on your lettuce, it's already been pre-contaminated with various pesticides. And some of those pesticides are directly associated with the incidence of Parkinson's and others. Parkinson's the only one I can think of at the top of my head. So that's the difference. So if you really want to have non-polluted food without being such a purist, not be too anal about it, you know, go non-processed, then move on to organic. And then I guess if you want to improve the quality of your meats, but I'm not even arguing for that or, or telling you to have to do that. So I hope that message got across. Um, it's interesting the questions I get back from the audience because from the people who listen, you know, some go, oh, it's too complicated. I don't know how to make this any simpler. I absolutely do not know how to make this any simpler because I'm working for the 50% that didn't find their body and suddenly have, you know, all these before and after pictures. They wanted it, but couldn't find that man or woman. And I think it's unfair to have them saying, come across with, oh, you weren't compliant. No, they're actually equal to, if it's 50%, even Verta Health only had 53% success. So what about the others? They were just lazy, unmotivated, couldn't understand the directions. Not at all. Not at all. So uh, we haven't even gotten into genetics, but that's a lesser thing. So I hope that's been a somewhat exciting podcast for you today. It's uh, from the heart. These are big deal, big issues for me. And it's interesting to have to sort of plow through this. It's like, how can you build a plan that works for these people? And that's more or less what I've set out to do. I mean, because anybody can say, hey, high fat, low carbs, moderate protein, go, go do it. Uh, we do do that, but it's what you do after that or and during that that gives you success. And not everybody gets there at the same time. Uh, one of the key things is having people not compare each other compare themselves to somebody else because we are just too different at this point. Okay. This is Dr. Goldcamp signing off. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might have been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to you know, go down as any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous 
overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people and losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are, why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered um, certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you. Hi, this is Dr. Goldkamikin. For a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode, you've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.